So, Will. Yes? Today's movie takes place in Paris, I'd say, on the verge of the French Revolution. The book is 1782. All right. So, yes. And the movie opens with the scene of two people getting ready for the day in what could conceivably be a four-hour process. It looks like it takes forever. I'm sorry, I do not have time in the morning when I wake up, like, 20 minutes before I need to leave for work to, like, have my bosom powdered. But my question is, what if you did have that time? In a world where you were so rich you didn't have to work, but also very limited media options existed to fill your time, what would you spend unnecessary amounts of time on? Okay, you added a qualifier here that I was not prepared for, because just in a world where I had really nothing to fill my time, I was going to say what I might do is chat regularly with someone about a movie we had watched and then spend many hours adding dumb sound effects to it. So I'm trying to picture life before... I mean, honestly, one thing that struck me watching this movie is there was a time where you just couldn't watch movies. Like, a movie would be in theaters, and then it would be inaccessible. Obviously, that is centuries after this movie is set, still. I think about it a lot with music, and the idea that until the turn of the 20th century, you never hear music that is not live. And it isn't until the turn of the 21st century that you can basically choose what you want to listen to, specifically. Honestly, what made me finally realize it was that scene in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, where she talks about... The idea that she likes going to church because she likes listening to music. And I was like, right, that is the only place she hears music. Right. We live in a world with a gluttony of choices. So anyway, to get back to your question, I feel like I would get like really into models. (laughs) Like being me. I can easily see you being that eccentric nobleman that just constantly has a ship in the bottle going. Yeah, but I would be like... Uh, More like Quasimodo in the Disney Hunchback of Notre Dame. Like, I would have, like, an elaborate recreation of a city. And, I mean, I would probably then be trying to make elaborate and expensive improvements, like monorails. Wow. Wow. You really hit the nail on the head with that one, I think. (laughs) Uh. What about you, Mark? What would you do with all your time? I think that I, based off of recent experiences in which I was unemployed, and couldn't leave my home, I think I would get really into baking, where if I had, like, a kitchen staff, they'd be so annoyed and would try and keep me out of the kitchen. You you hear stories of those eccentric noble people that think they can cook, but in fact are just causing chaos. I think that would be me. What you need is a second kitchen just for you. I mean... If you are an eccentric enough noble, that sounds exactly like something that would exist. Next to Marie Antoinette's fake peasant village that she pretended to be poor in. That's like, uh, it's Barbara Streisand who had the mall, right? Uh, I don't know about had. I think the (laughs) correct verb is has. An underground mall where she is the only shopper. There's a McDonald's there. Is there really? Uh, Yeah, there is a mall McDonald's there. Can you apply to work in the Barbara Streisand Mall? I mean, someone does. Like, there are people who work there. Wow. All right. I have a new career path. 
I have to break it to Nick that we will be packing up and moving to Malibu so that I can work in the Barbra Streisand Mall, a job that I'm sure pays enough to live in Malibu. Well, here's the deal. If you, like, need to secretly sleep at work, one person will notice. (laughs) I wonder if it's, like, three people that have to do every job, and there's, like, Walt Disney World tunnels that the staff have to use to run between stores so that she can pretend they're all staffed. But they would also have to be doing quick changes, because presumably they are dressed appropriately for the different stores. Yeah. I mean, wow. A lot of logistics here. Maybe she knows not to shop in next door to each other's stores. Listen, Barbara, we know you are a big fan of We Love the Love, so let us know how does it work. Uh, We would love to chat about this. Famously open about her home person, Barbara Streisand. Devoted listener of We Love the Love. Uh, wow. Marie Antoinette, though, big fan of Dangerous Liaisons. (laughs) The book? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought you were going to say a big fan of the podcast, and I had some news to break to you, Will. I do not think she has been listening. Well, I think that her ears are not where she wants them. (laughs) Yeah, they are no longer in a position to be used. Except for maybe, what, I think it's like half a second after the head is removed, they can still be used? Something creepy like that. Yeah. I do not like to think about it, and at the same time, I am utterly fascinated by it. I've been teaching the French Revolution recently, and as with all horrible things in history that are not racist, I always defend them because then my students get to, like, argue against them. And also it's fun to be like, no, like, the guillotine, it's so humane. Everyone should use the guillotine. I gotta say, it's probably more humane than some of the stuff that happens in our execution chambers. Oh, almost certainly. The whole point of the guillotine is it's almost instantaneous, and you don't feel anything. Yeah, it's pa- it's supposed to be painless. And it's great for the basket industry. It's just a little too fast and a little too easy. So you defend the French Revolution. Uh, yes, and, and the Reign of Terror specifically. It's a very interesting time that is mostly colored by our perception of it through English media at the time, which definitely over-exaggerated what was happening to an extent. Yes, and also, like, Americans think that Napoleon was four feet tall because of British political cartoons at the time. Yes. The history being taught in this country is largely the history of English people writing newspapers in a time when no accurate transmission of information existed. I've been reading this uh, this other book, The Field of Blood, which is a book about fights and threats to fight in the U.S. Congress in the first half of the 19th century. And there is a lot of talk about, like, unreliable newspaper coverage, including one time where, like, there had been rumors that two congressmen were going to duel. I forget the guy's name. But it was, like, reported, this congressman dead in a duel. And then in, like, the fourth paragraph, it was like, we have not yet confirmed this report. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. The history of media. It has never been good. And there was one point where in the same newspaper, because you know what, like a 19th century newspaper, you have all those like narrow columns of really dense text. And it started off like, duel threatened between these two congressmen. Further down, duel set to happen. Further down, duel did not happen. And it's like, you could have led with that one. That's getting readers' attention, baby. That is clickbait. That is headlines designed to sell some papers. Wow. 
It's almost like newspapers existing exclusively to turn a profit leads to some questionable journalistic choices. Yeah. What's happening in the 19th century is a similar thing that happens with the rise of the internet, which is there's a change in technology in the 19th century. It's the rise of the penny press, cheap printing, cheap paper. And so then it is easier for like anybody to put out whatever information, which is why like in the 1840s, there are newspapers in New York that are documenting every week the civilization that some astronomer has been watching on Mars and all the details of that civilization. Because it's easy to cheaply get in the game and make money taking advantage of people being dumb. It's like the first golden age of fraud, and we are living through a new one. Yes. Anyway, we are now discussing an era after the one (laughs) that we were originally discussing, and I think it's time to start the show. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger, and this is, of course, an investigative podcast dedicated to examining one of the least important issues facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually the most unlikable people we've seen in a movie on this podcast? (laughs) Quite possibly. (laughs) Also, are they dateable or likable? It's like them and the hot ghost from the spirit of Christmas. (laughs) I'm very excited to get into this. (laughs) And what this is for people who have not checked the title of the episode is Stephen Freer's 1988 Best Picture nominee, Dangerous Liaisons based on Christopher Hampton's play of the same name, which was based on the 1782 epistolary novel by Pierre Chaudelos de la Close. This movie was so much funnier than I was expecting. I knew very little going into Me too. At the end of our last episode, you said it was set in pre-revolutionary France, which was news to me. Um, Really, all I knew about Dangerous Liaisons was the Arrested Development runner about uh, Les Cousins' Dangero. That George Michael keeps sneaking into because he's like, oh, cousins can have sex. So really, I was expecting, like, incest out of this movie. <laughs> no, I, once I kind of piece together why I get them confused, Cruel Intentions is also an adaptation of the same book, but set in prep school New York in the 90s. Yes. So I kind of knew that it was sexual mind games. And then, turns out, it is um the most disturbing sexual mind games in a movie i have seen potentially it's crazy it's crazy glenn close is just unbelievably good in this movie she is and she's given surprisingly little to do like she disappears for some pretty large chunks of the movie and most of what she has to do is just sit there and look but she's doing it really well she barely moves in this movie and yet she is first billed for a reason yeah We also just should mention the run that Glenn Close is in at this point. This is 1988. Glenn Close gets a Best Actress nomination for this. It is her fifth Oscar nomination in 1988. She had been nominated in 83, 84, 85, 88, and then she gets nominated for this in 1989. Oh my god. She was just on this tear, and this is kind of where, like, the Glenn Close overdue narrative comes from. It's not just that there are a lot, it's that she's on this preposterous run And then after Dangerous Liaisons, she's not nominated again until Albert Nobbs in 2012, like 25 years later. Oh my god. 
I didn't know the full details of the Glenn Close Oscar story. That is insane. Also, the fact that she wasn't nominated for playing Cruella is a crime. No, but she was nominated for playing Mama in Hillbilly Elegy. So it was like Oof. she has been recognized for a heavily made up performance. <laughs> Ew. Uh, I have to say her performance in the 101 Dalmatians live action version is one of the first moments as a kid where I think I fell in love with an older actress like esteemed older actress i was so into that role that movie is great um i don't know this but i feel like horace and jasper in that movie were classic examples of characters that fiona would make us rewind and watch their scenes over and over again we've discussed this and she denies this one i don't think i think she's wrong i don't trust her yeah so it's hard to say so you knew nothing about this movie. I also knew nothing about this movie. What did you think? Um, I feel like I appreciated it more than I loved it. Like, mm. I really like, I love the performances, like Glenn Close and Michelle Pfeiffer, and uh, especially John Malkovich, who I, I really dug what he was doing. I just felt like, honestly, so it's adapted from this play, and the book is an epistolary novel, which kind of fascinated me when I learned that. So the book is all just the letters that the characters are sending back and forth. And it's not just the two of them, like letters between a bunch of characters, sometimes like describing the same events in different ways. So it's never entirely clarified what was going on. And I don't know that much about the play. It won an Olivier Award for Best New Play. Is that Um, the British Tonys? Yes. And it was nominated for the Tony, but lost to Fences. And part of what I felt watching it was Stephen Frears is doing a good job of turning this story into cinema and taking advantage of the tools of film, but I kind of wish it had been more limited. Like, I I would like to see this story bounded by the limitations of a stage. I am very curious to see this as a play, and it's definitely got play elements, but I did just, I think they went for it on the costumes and the locations and the sets. Oh yeah, this whole movie is shot on location. And it you just are transported to this world which i enjoyed i really i really enjoyed this the movie has its you know unfortunate moments oh yes it does (laughs) and i'm sure we will talk about the big one choices that i don't like but it also is a movie where even in depicting horrible acts the characters are not supposed to be redeemed i enjoyed this movie I think in large part because it's a movie that is just from the beginning. These are terrible people and you do not want them to succeed. And everything they're doing, you are supposed to be like, this is awful. You are being awful. And I think that was probably part of my disconnect was like divorced from like morality and emotions. Like on paper, the thing is built like a heist, but it's like the least fun heist ever because of how morally reprehensible it all is. Yeah, it's a heist movie, but you're not rooting for them to succeed. But it's very interesting because Glenn Close's character is someone who you could want to root for as like a woman who has made herself independent and is much more understandable than John Malkovich's character because... She is a product of her era in a way of trying to establish independence in a time period and a place where a woman having independence was unthinkable. But also, 
at the same time, she is clearly just an immoral person and using that to kind of justify being evil. Right. It's like, I mean, you started off this episode with a question about basically if you had unlimited time and very little to do, what would you spend your time doing? And really their answer is is cruelty. It's just callousness. And they're very open about that too. They are. And, uh, you know, going back to the period in which the novel is written in the 1780s, it's just this point where these wealthy people in a world that has basically no consequences for them, or at least it appears, you know, we'll see what <laughs> consequences happens 10 years are from coming down the line. But in a world where it, it appears that nothing they do has any sort of consequence, what they do is they detach from the world. They don't really engage with many emotions. They aren't able to engage with their emotions, which in a way is where a lot of their problems come from. You know, they can't express anything except for this cruel manipulation. Yeah, I mean, if they were also just like able to admit that they loved each other from the beginning, even though they do, it's weird because they admit that they love each other, but they can't act on it. Many lives would be saved or improved. Oh, yes, indeed. And this isn't quite in the movie to the same degree. I mean, in the movie, Valmont winds up dead and Glenn Close is publicly shamed and all that. She dies in the book. Does she really? Yeah. So she is publicly (laughs) shamed as a result of her involvement in all of this. She flees to the countryside where she contracts smallpox which permanently pockmarks her, so she loses her beauty. I guess she doesn't die. She has to live with the loss of her beauty. Madame de Torvel succumbs to a fever and dies, and Cecile's fiancé dumps her, and she goes back to the convent in disgrace. Doesn't she end up just back in the convent in this movie? Yes, she does. I didn't get as harsh a vibe as I got reading about the book. I think this ending works very well for the movie, though. Oh, it does. I didn't need more than her just wiping her makeup off. Like, going and getting smallpox just wouldn't really translate well to the movie. No. Just an interesting thing to note, I think. It is. I also like that we're avoiding saying her character's name because neither of us are confident in how to pronounce it. I'm seeing uh, Mertuil. I think it's Mertoy. It was like Madame de Mertoy or something weird. Definitely the hardest to pronounce of the names. Yeah. The novel, by the way, was, like, a gigantic hit in France when it came out. It was, like, one of the best-selling books of all time. Like, now, a lot of people talk about it as, like, oh, yes, like, it was a critique of the aristocracy leading up to the revolution. But people at the time did not talk about it as a critique of the aristocracy. They talked about it as, like, look at this sexy book. Yeah, the critique was kind of just ignored, even though it it exists. Right, but also, like, Laclos, the author, was, like, very much in with the nobility. He was, like personally patronized by the Duke of Orléans, who did become a supporter of the revolution. But yeah, like, Marie Antoinette's reading the book and loving it. Like, it was a giant hit. Well, of course, these people probably loved Scandal and related to the characters and didn't realize how that is the problem. Yeah, it also, you know, the French aristocracy of the early 1780s is not exactly famous for (laughs) self-awareness. Yeah, you watch this movie... And you understand why I watched this movie and I was like, we need a revolution stat. I know. You understand why the guillotines are being sharpened. And I want Peter Capaldi up there dropping the blade himself. Oh, you know he would turn in an instant. 
he is going to do so well in the Paris Commune. He is going to be second in command to Robespierre. He's going to be playing the same role, spying, turning on people, but this time for France, in question marks, slash still for Azulon's pocket. Did you ever watch the personal history of David Copperfield? I did not, unfortunately. You should. I think it's on HBO right now. It's a real delight. It's the Armando Iannucci adaptation that came out last year. And Peter Capaldi plays just like this scumbum dude who teams up with David Copperfield for a while. And it's great. He's always fun. I was delighted to see him here. It's so interesting that they cast him to be the doctor. I never watched his seasons, considering he only plays scumbags outside of the doctor. He's not known for playing heroes, I feel. He's very good in this. He's so good in it. I wanted more of him. I don't think the movie needed more of him, but I wanted more of him. I think every actor in this movie is incredible. There's no bad performances in this movie. No, Uma Thurman is like 17 in this movie. That is terrifying. I don't like it. This is a year after her first movie. Her boobies should not be out if she is 17. If she's 18, she's barely 18. Yeah, she must be 18, because otherwise it wouldn't be They would be not be legal. able to show the movie. Yeah. yeah. Still creepy. Yes. I don't care for it. She looks young, but also I'm so used to 27-year-olds playing 17-year-olds that my brain is just unable to judge age in Hollywood anymore. Well, we'll see. We're watching Dear Evan Hansen. I was about to say, except that Ben Platt is old. (laughs) (laughs) They have finally crossed the line. Everyone has been inching to the line for so long. We'll talk about that more because we're doing an episode on it in two weeks. But I just loved reading every review after the Toronto premiere where every review, like they varied, where some of them are like, this movie's just the worst. And some people are like, There's a lot of good stuff here, but the movie cannot get past this one calamitous decision. I think the Vulture article correction is still the greatest (laughs) thing to come out of the Dear Evan Hansen discourse. This is the one where they had to issue a correction saying Ben Platt is not wearing a wig in the movie. That is his real hair. Yeah, but they say, like, incredibly or unbelievably, that is his real hair in the correction. It's so funny. God. Speaking of wigs and hair, the wigs and hair in this movie are ridiculous. They won an an Oscar for costume design. I am unsurprised because if there's a movie that the Oscars would give costume design to, it is this one. Yeah. As I mentioned, it was also nominated for Best Picture and Lost to Rain Man. Glenn Close and Michelle Pfeiffer were both nominated in Actress and Supporting Actress, and they got a nomination for Best Score. They won, as I said, for costume design, for art direction, and for best adapted screenplay for Christopher Hampton, who also wrote the play. This is a big era for Michelle Pfeiffer, too, right? Isn't this the same year as Married to the Mob? It is. Yeah. So it's a big year for her and especially for like showing off different kind of stuff. Have you seen Married to the Mob? No. Is it good or is it worth watching? Two very different questions. Um, I think it's good. It's pretty wacky and kind of anarchic we're gonna be talking about something wild in a couple of weeks which is the movie that jonathan demi made before married to the mob and i think married to the mob is more of a comedy than something wild is um but it's it's a pretty good time i now with seeing michelle pfeiffer on screen all i can think about is her successfully decapitating all four mannequins in one take on batman returns 
Well, the thing you need to watch with Michelle Pfeiffer is, I'm guessing you still have not seen The Witches of Eastwick. I have seen some of The Witches of Eastwick, and then I fell asleep because it was late. Mark, you must watch that movie. I think Michelle Pfeiffer is incredibly good in Stardust. Have you watched that? The Neil Gaiman adaptation? She plays a witch who is obsessed with staying young with her sisters, Kathy to Jimmy, I think, and uh, Sarah Jessica Parker. Nope, those are the two women from Hocus Pocus. It is exactly the same vibe of the three sisters. I cannot remember who her sisters are in that movie. Well, and that's Witches of Eastwick, is Pfeiffer, Susan Sarandon, and Cher. And they're all having sex with Jack Nicholson, who is playing the devil. That's ridiculous. It's so good. I guess the three witches trope comes from the mother maiden crone thing. Oh, yeah, sure. And the Macbeth. But it is also interesting how often it does just kind of show up. Also in big news for Michelle Pfeiffer this year is she had an onset affair with John Malkovich during the shooting of this movie, which ended his marriage. Oh, (laughs) wow. I mean, at least it wasn't Uma Thurman. No. I think casting someone who is not hot as Valmont is like the most interesting choice the movie makes. I think he's great in this movie. He is so good. And you can understand why he is a successful seducer. He's just kind of magnetic. But he's also just, I feel like in the book, people probably were picturing someone quite dashing. So the next year, there is another adaptation of the novel made in Hollywood called Valmont. And that one stars young, late 80s Colin Firth. Oh, so hot. Right. And I think that's probably more what people would have expected. And then Cruel Intentions comes out like three years after that. No, that's towards the end of the 90s. Was that the end of the 90s? Oh. Yeah. I I thought it was beginning of the 90s. I guess Sarah Michelle Gellar is not that old that she could be in a movie like that in the early 90s. Yeah, Cruel Intentions is 99. Okay. So, yeah, 10 years feels like a good gap for them to be like, let's remake this, but with horny teens. Horny teens. The CW model. (laughs) Hey. I was about to say, someone had to see that version of Nancy Drew, but actually nobody watched it. It got canceled. <laughs> I Did they ever air it? Yeah, they aired a season of it. It came out? Yeah. I had no idea. Look, nobody watched new television during the pandemic except for Tiger King and The Queen's Gambit. Oh, was that a pandemic show? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't watch either of them. I did watch both of them, and I have a lot of regrets about watching Tiger King. My regret will be if any of the many Tiger King projects in development get made. I have a feeling they will, all except maybe one, will get canceled. Yeah. I think one of them will come out, but it'll come out like five years from now. It'll come out way too late. Tiger King disappeared from the zeitgeist so fast. I also think I went immediately from Tiger King into Flavor of Love Season 1. That was not a great time for quality television in my household. Mark, it has been a year of me telling you just to watch tons of Survivor. Flavor of Love Season 1 is probably somehow still more moral than Tiger King, despite being an absolutely immoral shit show. How moral is it relative to Dangerous Liaisons? Um... 
I mean, everyone is very open on Flavor of Love. There's none of this behind-the-scenes conniving. It is spitting in people's faces. It is hair-pulling. I guess the closest you get to, like, a real lie is someone gets busted having been on another reality TV (laughs) dating show. (laughs) Wait, (laughs) and that was a big problem? Yeah, so Flavor Flav is, Flavor Flav, excuse me, is watching TV in bed, and one of the contestants, Hottie, shows up and is terrible. Let's start, that's amazing. (laughs) What you just said is incredible television. You couldn't, you, I mean, they probably did script it, but his reaction was pro- not really scripted. I'm sure the producers put it on, but it's still just, it's high drama. So what happened? Well, obviously he gets mad. This is the same contestant that had tried to microwave a raw whole chicken for 30 seconds and then served it. <laughs> You haven't told that story on the podcast. (laughs) It is the same contestant. She is awful in the clip they show, too. In her talking head, she's like, I don't care about men. I'm only in it for money. And so immediately, Flava Flav knows she is not in it for him. So she leaves. She's not there for the right reasons. She's not there for the right reasons. So she leaves. Wow. Honestly, Will, I think you would kind of enjoy Flavor of Love for the sheer television of it all because if it's one thing it is television my girlfriend recently decided that like just occasionally when she wants to have the tv on but like nothing in particular that her new show is wife swap and so (laughs) i have taken to periodically joining her for wife swap and i'm like half paying attention i'm usually grading during it and mid-2000s reality tv there was something just kind of magical about it when it was like so unprofessional i just learned that one of the families on wife swap where they had like a super rigid family and then they brought in someone from a more relaxed family who was like you're pushing your children too hard you're setting too many boundaries the new wife said to the new husband and she said like someday they're gonna snap and then 10 plus years later the oldest son who is on wife swap murders his parents and is in jail (laughs) what (laughs) yes so that is my main point of reference for wife swap now wow what's what's alarming is that family dynamic which is very basic and i'm sure done a lot on the show i have seen an episode with that dynamic i mean it was like it was rough they got stickers anytime they were it like in a good mood and so they were rewarded for never showing negative emotions that seems bad and it was just i saw this on tiktok of course so but it was good because they were able to include clips and then okay they, i have not seen this family they interviewed the wife of the wife swap and she was just kind of like it's horrible but i'm not too surprised Oof. Um, speaking of the wife, Glenn Close is in this movie. <laughs> the wife. Uh, okay. Back to Dangerous Liaisons. This is funny because I did enjoy this movie, but it's so yeah. uncomfortable that I don't really want to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, it is. It's fraught. It is fraught. And again, I think these are two of, if not the two worst leads of a movie we have watched. Right. As I said, it's them and the ghost from the spirit of Christmas. Haha. <laughs> 
oh my god part of me is so i want to rewatch it because i'm curious but i know that's just a trap it's it's so boring it's but it's so sounds, boring it sounds so interesting and so you convince yourself that it had to have been good but it is just boring uh and it is not by the way scary <laughs> because we should remember my sisters are both frightened of that movie no oh my god oh if anything i was a little frightened of this movie in some ways because it was fraught yeah so i think it'll be best to give a brief overview of the plot because the five points we're doing a more couple-based approach okay i was wondering what you were gonna do and i was very glad it was not my job to sort the points out i couldn't figure out a good linear plot structure so we're going couple based all right but to give an overview of the plot the movie opens with glenn close's character having friends over and then a ex-lover of hers the viscomte du valmont shows up and after her friends leave she says that she has a proposition for him. Her ex-husband is now being pre-engaged to the daughter of the friend she had just had over, who is a wholesome young blonde played by Uma Thurman. Right. We're told that he's always had a thing for convent-educated women. Right. And so to get revenge on her ex-husband who she hates, she asks Valmont to seduce Cecile. And he's like... An 18-year-old who's been in a convent? Like, that's too easy. I could seduce her in a minute. It's not worth the effort. He refuses because it would be bad for his reputation to do something so easy. Which is awful. But he then says, instead, he is going out to the countryside to try and seduce basically the most famously moral woman in the aristocracy. Right. Madame de Tourmond, who is married and very faithful to her husband and very catholic and not the person kind of person who is going to succumb to a famously lecherous nobleman and this is an era where being faithful to your husband or wife is not the expected norm not in the way that it is today not the way it is today like having an acknowledged affair was pretty common among the aristocracy Yes. Also, Catholicism, I don't know how strong it was, considering less than 10 years later during the French Revolution, it's fully banned. Yes, but there are, like, also active rebellions in the countryside because of that. Yes, but I do feel like it just points to elements of society that wouldn't be as, you know, you have the picture of this era as being everyone is super religious. There are a lot of nominal Catholics. Yes. And so... He is trying to seduce Madame de Tourmont, who is at his aunt's house for the, I don't know, how long. Time doesn't really matter in this movie. It's the Jane Austen thing where you're like, you've been visiting there on a whim for six weeks? Yeah. A casual drop-in visit can range anywhere from like three days to three years. And again, it's about time for a revolution. (laughs) Yes. I'm pretty sure the Declaration of the Rights of Man specified how long you were allowed to visit for. <laughs> you could have how long you could just disappear for. Everyone has a natural right to life, liberty, property, and as we all know, uh, guests and fish both start to smell after three days. 
Oh my god. They borrowed from Jefferson and Franklin. So he goes out to the countryside. Glenn Close stays in Paris. And he tries to seduce Madame de Tourmont. Tor- What's it? Tourmont? I think Tourmont. Torvel. Tor- Valmont okay. Torvel. And so he is going the route of pretending to be in love and holding back his emotions and respect for her or whatever. And then she is starting to feel feelings, so she forces him to leave. But also, crucially, he never pretends to be a good person. He's like, I am famously a bad person. Like, she is not going to believe if I'm like, oh, I'm a good person. Everyone's lied about me. Instead, he's like, I'm going to be an open bad person and be like, and yet I have fallen for you. But then she kicks him out, which brings him back to Paris. But then he basically goes back. Well, actually, I feel like we'll actually get into all this, so it might be worth getting into the points. All right. So every week we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to help us make sense of the romance that we're evaluating. And as we've said, Mark, this was your job this week. So walk us through Dangerous Liaisons. So we're going to go through five relationships from the movie, and we're going to start with the least important moving up towards the most important. So the first relationship we'll dive into is Azalon Valmont's, I don't know, valet, butler type guy, confidant, and Julie, who is one of the various women that hang around a noble woman. I don't think she's a full lady in waiting because I don't think she's noble. She's listed on the cast list on Wikipedia as a chambermaid. Okay, so a chambermaid of Torvel. And their relationship starts because... Azalon is trying to use her to spy on De Torvel for Valmont. Azalon is the Peter Capaldi character, so he's got that scumbum energy as he's seducing this woman and complaining about it because she's apparently not very good in bed. Yeah, she's not good in bed and he's not getting information out of her. So he's he wants to end it, but instead Valmont decides to stage a situation where he catches her so that they can and then he could be her. like, wow, you know, Julie, you should be being a good woman and not having sex with Peter Capaldi, but I'll keep your secret <laughs> if you get me all of Torvel's letters. So he demands all of her correspondence going in and out. And then we're told that, that they continue to have sex. And Peter Capaldi, even in this movie, as a much younger man than he is now, still has that kind of like frustrated, like, why am I doing this energy? And I just, it's something to imagine that with him every night, like, fine, Julie. Yeah. Eventually he says she gets better, but I think they continue to basically be having sex the rest of the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's the 10,000 hour rule. He kind of disappears in the later elements. Or Which is later because he's great. Anyway, uh, that's point one. Point two, we're going to go into Cecile and... Dancenay, who is her music teacher slash love interest slash Keanu Reeves, most importantly. <laughs> Monsieur Dancenay is one of those rare eccentrics who come here to listen to the music. I do look forward to our next meeting. We've been talking about Cecile, who's uh, this sort of young convent graduate played by Uma Thurman. As you said, Donsony is played by Keanu Reeves. I did want to mention, in the one that comes out next year, Valmont, the one with Colin Firth, next year from this movie in 1989, 
Dunsany is played by Henry Thomas, Elliot from E.T. Oh my god. He seems way too young for that. Yeah. So, he is a poor chevalier. So he's, like, kind of noble, but poor. And after Valmont turns down Glenn Close, she connives to have this dashing young musician become the teacher and eventual paramour of Cecile in the hopes that they will then sleep together and her plan of ruining her ex-husband's future bride will come to fruition. So she is egging this on while pretending to be a voice of reason to Cecile. Somehow Cecile has decided that Glenn Close is her best mentor figure. Yes, this was a foolish decision. So they are kind of flirty-flirty, but then... It's not going fast enough, so Glenn Close actually flips and tells Cecile's mother about this to get her out in the countryside. And so they end up stay they all end up at the same house at Valmont's aunt's house. Right. And it's around this point then that, thanks to the arrangement with Julie, Valmont finds out that Cecile's mother has told Madame de Torvel this guy's really scummy, like, wow, no one should have anything to do with him. So he's mad at Cecile's mother, and so then, to take revenge, he tricks Cecile into getting him a key to her bedroom. Which under he false does pretenses. by saying that he is going to be the go-between by her and her love, Donsonet. Right. And instead, he goes in himself and rapes her. Yeah. It is definitely the hardest moment to watch in the movie. Yeah. And she is distraught, obviously. And then Glenn Close comes to (laughs) the villa because this is such classic play move of just somehow getting everyone to the same house. And then Glenn Close, in probably her most nefarious move of the movie, then talks Cecile into saying like oh no like it's not a big deal that you had sex like what's what's absurd is that you were ashamed for having been seduced like you basically telling her like you wanted this and you should admit it to yourself right it's awful and then she basically convinces yeah she convinces Cecile that she wanted this it is her fault and then she should continue doing it because it'll make her husband happy later if she is good at sex And she says, like, and by all means, you know, continue banging Keanu on the side because that's what people do. Yeah, (laughs) because she is just like, basically have sex with as many people as you want. Try and keep it separate. But everyone is doing it. At one point, Valmont tells Cecile and like, who knows if this is true or not. But he tells Cecile that he also had sex with her mom at one point. Right. He says that her mom was in a room between her husband and her acknowledged lover. Right, they had arranged like for her to go back and forth. But then still had Valmont come over and sleep with her. Which, obviously, Valmont, not a reliable narrator. But if it is true, that's pretty, pretty gross. Yes. But this kind of ties into, which we'll get into for point three, while this is happening... Glenn Close has also started sleeping with Don Sine, basically just because he's there and handsome. Yeah, pretty much. And then he becomes, like, devoted to her and seems to stop caring about Cecile as much. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's just the thing of, like, he saw Fatal Attraction, and then once he had the opportunity to be with Glenn Close, he couldn't say no. Of course. And so Cecile and Donsonet kind of just, like, lose interest in each other in a way. Yeah, and, I mean, there's also the distance. Cecile is having very enthusiastic sex with Valmont. And learning a lot. But then, just to tie the Cecile Donsonet story up by the end... Uh, spoiler alert, Valmont is dead at the hands of Donsonet for sleeping with Cecile. And then Cecile's just like, screw all this, I'm going back to the convent. But also in the midst of that, at one point, Valmont impregnates Cecile and she miscarries. Oh my god, yeah, I forgot. This is a long movie. With a lot of, like, shifting sexual pairs. It's hard to keep track. Yeah, so Cecile gets pregnant with Valmont's baby. Thank goodness everyone is famous. Because then I can just be like, (laughs) alright, we got Michelle Pfeiffer, we got Keanu Reeves. That is a very good point. And so Glenn Close is actually very happy about this because it means that her ex-husband's new heir will be Valmont's child as a big screw you. So she's annoyed when the miscarriage happens. Right. But then the miscarriage also makes Cecile ill. So she uh, ends up back at the convent. Donsonet is the one who publishes the letters, which we'll get into at the end. But yeah, so... That's kind of point two and three. Three, Glenn Close and Keanu Reeves, that relationship just happens. Yeah, there's barely anything there. But this brings us to point four, which we've kind of got into, Valmont and de Torvel. Why are you so angry with me? All I can offer you is my friendship. Can't you accept it? I could pretend to, but that would be dishonest. The man I used to be would have been content with friendship and then set about trying to turn it to his advantage. But I've changed now. I can't conceal from you that I love you tenderly, passionately, and above all, respectfully. Right. He comes into the movie planning to seduce her to prove that he can seduce even the most moral woman in the aristocracy. And so they, to, you know, catch you up, he is proclaimed his love after admitting he was a bad person, but because of her example is now trying to be a good person and she kicks him out of the chateau that they're staying in. But then he returns and tries to seduce her yet again. And eventually with his repeated persistence and like whenever he's doing those like welcome cheek kisses, he always does like really lush kisses. He does that on kind of everyone though. Yeah. And again, you know, I think, I think Malkovich is great. He is, he is excellent. And like, The best actor list in 1988 is strong. Like, I don't know that I would mess with it, but I think it's a shame that when this movie gets nominated for, like, basically everything everywhere, he's the one that gets left off all the time. Yeah. I haven't looked at the full list, but he is very good. But then she eventually is willing, like, tearfully willing in a way to have sex with him, but he stops it. Because he is developing feelings for her. Right. So he had been pretending to love her, but now he actually does. It's a can't-buy-me-love situation. So he then tries to stay away. Eventually they do fall in love, and they are kind of in a relationship. But even in that, he's like still manipulating her. Like He does the whole thing where when she's coming over, he makes sure he sees her like, chatting with the courtesan. Yeah, he can't stop playing mind games, obviously. And he's terrible. They are actively sleeping together. 
But yeah. then he is still in love. Essentially, he is still in love with Glenn Close, who is jealous that he's actually in love. And so she threatens to ruin his reputation by saying that he has fallen in love. And I'm sure we'll talk about this in your fifth point. But right. w- one of the runners in all of this is that at the beginning of the movie, Glenn Close asked Valmont to seduce Cecile as revenge on her ex-husband. And he's like, no, that's too easy. I'm going to get Madame de Torvel. And Glenn Close says, fine, if you do seduce her and you bring me proof, then I will have sex with you. And so part of it is like, it's obvious that the two of them, Glenn Close and and Valmont, have a history of their own. I mean, really what it is, is like they're in love with each other and they're too proud and messed up to do anything about it. And so she's mad at him for having actually fallen in love with Torvel. And so she doesn't get the proof that she had asked for, which was actual in writing in de Torvel's hand saying that they had slept together. So this is more in point five. But so she basically says in the end, I will ruin your reputation if you don't end it with her right now, because his reputation of being a playboy is everything to him. So he breaks it off with de Torvel in the hopes that he will then get to be with Gled Close. Which he does not. Do you mean you don't love me anymore? My love had great difficulty outlasting your virtue. It's beyond my control. It's that woman, isn't it? You're quite right. I have been deceiving you with Emily, among others. It's beyond my control. Why are you doing this? There's a woman, not Emily, another woman. A woman I adore. And I'm afraid she's insisting that I give you up. And so he basically thinks that he will be able to get back with Dutorvel. And surprisingly, she is not into it. Yeah, Glenn Close is like, actually, no, I gave you advice that would end it irreparably. And it does end irreparably because Dutorvel kind of just in classic, <laughs> classic of this era woman move just kind of dies because she's sad. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, in the book, it's a fever or something. They don't even say that she gets sick. And this, she kind of just wastes away and dies. Which is, it's sad. And I don't mean to be laughing, but it's just so ridiculous. She's like surrounded by nuns and habits and a priest. It's kind of out of nowhere. Yeah. It's a little dramatic. Uh, So that's point four. Ends with her dying her death yes yeah and then point five the most important relationship in the movie the crux of the film which we have covered quite extensively already is glenn close and john malkovich i want the excitement of watching her betray everything that's most important to her surely you understand that i thought betrayal was your favorite word no no cruelty i always think that has a nobler ring to it Like I said, they clearly have this sexual and, although they probably wouldn't admit it, romantic history. Like, these are people who are in love with each other and they can't face that fact. And instead of just acknowledging that, they lash out at everyone around them. They're like, I feel love and I hate myself for feeling love. So I'm going to make everyone else who feels love appear to be a fool. It sounds like they met during her marriage. And they were sleeping together at some point, but my guess is that, and it's not laid out clearly, but I would 
I see it as they got feelings for each other, and because of who they are, that meant they had to stop their relationship before it got, you know, icky, as they would see it. And that, so they're, they haven't been in touch for a long time, and so they're rekindling their relationship now. And in the process of just not admitting that they are in love with each other, and playing sexual mind games amongst themselves, multiple deaths occur. Yeah. (laughs) Uh... So we discussed the the game that they set up at the beginning, how she demands in writing that he has successfully seduced Torvel. When he fails to get it in writing, he thinks that she'll sleep with him anyway, but she's He's jealous. like, you know I have obviously seduced her. Right, but she's jealous, so she uses the letter to hold it against him. And then he's able to get the letter, and she still is like, nah. Yeah, so she basically just is too upset about it. And as you said, demands that he break things off with her. Right. And so he does. And after that, she still won't sleep with him because she's still jealous. And he says, like, you can either sleep with me or I will ruin your life. And she's confident because she is never lost in one of these battles before that she will ruin his life. And so she demands war, as she puts it. Yeah. Which doesn't really work out for either of them. Because she right, tells... he winds up dead, killed by Dantene. <laughs> yeah, she tells Dantene that he slept with a Cecile, so they go have a duel, and he dies. Uh, Mark, duels are dumb. Duels are dumb. But that said, I'm hyped for the last duel. With his dying breath, Valmont is like, here are all the letters that he must have brought with him between me... <laughs> they're clear. They're in his coat pocket. Like, imagine if Dantene had stabbed through them. What a pain that would have been. I mean, he may have lived because there were so many letters. Like the Teddy Roosevelt thing? Yeah. So he tells Dantene to publish all of their correspondence, laying out how terrible, how trash these people are. And so the movie ends with Glenn Close going to the opera, where previously she had been, you know, she has a seat right at the front. She is the center of attention. But this time people just boo her. Which is great. I don't love booing, but I think there are times when we should bring back booing. It's like the Princess Bride booing. Right. Bow before the Queen of Filth. So then she obviously runs away, and the movie ends with a great shot of her wiping her makeup off. Full circle from the beginning of the movie where she is putting the makeup on. Yeah. She put on the mask, and then the mask is removed. Symbolism, etc. So, Mark. Yes? Do you find the romance of dangerous liaisons believable oh god i forgot i had to think about this element i think i do not i don't think so like do i believe in the decadence of the pre-revolutionary aristocracy absolutely but for starters i just think this would be really hard to pull off i think it's a lot of work it's a lot of effort i guess they don't have anything else to do Again, time is an illusion in this movie. I have no sense of how long this movie takes place over. But I think it's the thing of, like, in thinking about believability, like, the romance in this is a heist. And you think about, like, how believable you find a heist movie, even when it's fun. I think there are elements that are believable. I think the messed up nature of the two leads is pretty extreme. They're devils! They are Satan. So on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the least, 10 the most believable, where would you rate this? I do not know. <laughs> I'm thinking like, like a 4. I believe that Cecile and Dantene would fall in love. 
Sure. And he would definitely bang Glenn Close, given the opportunity. Yes. Who wouldn't? Right. I believe Azalon could successfully seduce Julie. Yeah. Uh, apparently. I think that's made abundantly clear. Uh, But... I think it is more unbelievable than believable, which is why I'm going with a four. Yeah, I'm going to go with a three. I think I buy it all a little less than you do. Okay. Uh, do you think any of our romantic leads is dateable? Okay. Uh, Glenn Close, no. Valmont, no. Although, a note on Valmont, I forgot to say, the role was originated on the West End by Alan Rickman in the 80s. That is great casting. Isn't that a fascinating idea? I would love to see that. Um. Anyway, Valmont's a no. Capaldi's a no. Like, Torvel is probably dateable. Uh, she seems a little too pretentious. And Cecile, maybe? She's just so young. She's so young and convent-educated. And Dancine is a little too, I don't know, too much of an artist. Yeah, I got no time for that. I got no time for that. So, uh, um, w- would any couple in this movie stay together? Well, none of the couples are together, and... A significant number of them are dead or cloistered, so I'm going to go with no. (laughs) Fair. If you had to pick one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? Um, the trouble with this is that there are the people who are morally reprehensible. Cecile seems nice, but again, she's just so young. Um, Cecile's mom is annoying. (laughs) My move might be, uh, Emily, the courtesan? She's great. I love her. She seems fun. Maybe a little judgy, but fun. I was leaning towards Valmont's aunt. Okay, yeah. Just in the background, playing cards by herself. She's got a lot of money, which you like. Has people over. I'm not trying to suggest you're shallow, but you often pick people for this who have a lot of money. Usually it's because most movies with people who have a lot of money, they have no other redeeming characteristic. So you might as well pick someone that you can spend money with. But she just seems nice. Yeah, I think that's fair. She's invested in the a peasant family that Valmont saves as part of his ploy to win de Torvel. Not enough to probably support the revolution when it happens, I'm sure. <laughs> no, she is not going to. She is guillotined, I would I would wager. Her best hope is just being in the right part of the countryside. <laughs> Her best hope is just dying before the ten years are up. Yeah, or she could be an emigre, I guess. Huh. Good luck. I don't wish you well. (laughs) Now, Mark. Yes? Many of the films we've discussed on this podcast have been adapted into stage musicals. Should this happen with Dangerous Liaisons? I say yes. Okay, tell me why. I think, well, maybe an opera. Like, imagine all of these costumes on stage with luxurious sets and then, like, harpsichord music. I, I agree with you. I think opera is the better move because the like the musical in a way is so intimate a medium most of the time. You're like really in a person's head and I don't want to be in these people's <laughs> I don't heads. don't want to be in these heads. Whereas opera is so heightened that it doesn't feel quite as invasive. Now, but picture this. Dangerous Liaisons, the hip opera. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say, like, Dangerous Liaisons, like, the theme park show, like, Beetlejuice. <laughs> now that I can get behind. <laughs> Imagine walking around Six Flags, and instead of, like, cowboys having a shootout, there's just a full French 
Ajiel regime sexual manipulation drama happening. But of course, it's like a theme park show, so it's like forty the forty five minute version. Yeah. Um. Even that would be a really long one. And of course, Valmont is played by the Six Flags guy. <laughs> of course. <laughs> And anytime he walks on stage like sexily, it's da 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 I mean, we can't improve that. So on that note, I think that's about Well, it. actually, Mark. Oh, no. It's happened. Not based on this movie, obviously, but based on the novel. There have been four ballets. Oh. And three operas. Well, yeah, that does track. And a Spanish-language musical called Las Relaciones Peligrosas that debuted in Argentina in 2012. I do know that there is also, I think, maybe a Chinese adaptation set in Shanghai. Because when I searched to watch this movie, I said, oh, it's on Pluto TV for free. And then it started. And I was like, this looks like China. And I (laughs) realized it was the wrong movie. Yeah, the 2012 Chinese one, which I almost bought on DVD for the same reason. (laughs) Well, at least we would have showed up to talk about the same movie. Um, yeah, I, tr- I had to rent this, ultimately. I tried to watch it on Hoopla, and besides the fact that Hoopla gives you an SD stream, which I hate, uh, it kept crashing on me, so finally I had to plunk down my $3. Yeah, I keep forgetting to check Hoopla. I am now beefing with Hoopla. Um, okay. Hoopla, fix yourself. I think that's about it for Dangerous Liaisons. Fix yourself, Hoopla, or I'm gonna fix you for you. Okay, next week, we have an incredible movie to discuss. (laughs) We have already recorded this episode, and I cannot wait. We are going to be watching a made-for-TV movie about the United States Postal Service's fictional, like, dead-letter office, which, of course, is in Colorado, uh, from the (laughs) Hallmark... (laughs) Mysteries and Movies channel, I believe? Yeah, from the Hallmark Movies and Mysteries channel, their original series of movies signed sealed delivered we will be covering i think it's the ninth one the road less traveled you can stream it on hallmark movies now if you have that we watched it on a dvd that i was given with the condition that we do it on the podcast i cannot wait to watch this would recommend great terrible trash i love it It's a delightful way to spend time. Uh, It's also 82 minutes long, (laughs) so it is not a commitment. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at LoveTheLovePod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at LoveTheLovePod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. I dread to hear any answer to this question. There is no good one. But we do have to ask it. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Dangerous Liaisons? Be honest about who you are, um, because, you know, Valmont is honest that he's a scumbag when he's trying to seduce Torvel, and it works. Um, don't put down anything in writing that is incriminating if you're trying to keep it, a, your relationship as a secret. Okay, I was wondering if it, when it was going to come into being dating advice. <laughs> yeah, I and don't know. not just like crime advice. More is not on this episode. Yeah, it's true. A lot of crime in this movie. I mean, I don't think it was a federal law in France to read people's mail, so you can't really make that joke. But it was probably no. frowned upon. Yeah, uh, the Postables would not be a fan. A joke you'll understand when you watch the movie for next week. No, they do not say that word in the movie. <laughs> uh, a joke you'll understand if you read the Wikipedia page for the series of movies that we are covering next week. 
All right, well, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye.